Our scripture reading for this evening comes from the book of Ezekiel, and we will look at chapter 33. We will read verses 1 through 22, so not the entire chapter. Ezekiel 33, 1 through 22. There's a big leap from our last chapter, which was 16, and I'll explain why later. But for now, Ezekiel 33, 1 through 22. Thus says the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows a trumpet and warns the people, then, if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that a wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgression and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it, when he turns from his wickedness, and the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives battle what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just. 
when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say, the word, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. In the twelfth month of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the men came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. What now, Joe? What now, Joe? is a poem by Carlos Drummond de Andrade, a famous Brazilian poet. Let me read to you the first verses of that poem. What now, Joe? The party's over, the lights are off, the crowd's gone, the night's gone cold. What now, Joe? What now, you? Drummond wrote this poem at the dawn of the 21st century. Brazil was becoming increasingly urban at that point. And the average Brazilian Joe now finds himself lost in the concrete jungle of metropolitan cities. In this poem, this Joe experiences the feeling, the anguish even, of disorientation, of not having a place to belong because everything has changed. Key in hand, he proceeds. You want to open the door, but no door exists. You want to die in the sea, but the sea has dried. You want to go to home, but home is no longer there. With time then in Brazil, what now, Joe, has become uh, a common idiom in Portuguese to express this feeling of, what now? What do you do when there's nothing left to do? He proceeds, the night's gone cold, the day didn't come, the tram didn't come, lather didn't come, utopia didn't come, and everything ended, and everything fled, and everything rotted. What now, Joe? You might not know a lot of Brazilian poetry, let alone Drummond, but if you are following the ancient prophetic poetry of Ezekiel, in our series, tonight we reach the point where this book asks of us, what now, you? You see, the readers and the hearers of Ezekiel have been living in anticipation of a world-changing catastrophic event since chapter 1, when God came from the north, as enemies usually do, mounted for war on his angelic flaming chariot, Ezekiel 16, a prophecy so thick it took us four sermons to chew and swallow it, used some of the harshest language that we find in the Bible to describe this imminent disaster. They're just waiting for it. 
And then tonight, we see the final straw in the stack that, break, that breaks Israel's camel's back. Jerusalem has fallen. The city is destroyed. The walls have come down. The temple is no more. What now, Joe? How will the people of God react to those news? What do you do when you realize that you have caused your biggest undoing? Tonight, Ezekiel, by the Holy Spirit who speaks through him, the Spirit who opens his mouth, will give us hope for these moments in our lives when we feel there is nothing left to lose. We will see above all that God's mercy in Jesus always has the final say. So in summary, we will see that for those who are in Christ, nothing is ever truly lost. Again, for those who are in Christ, nothing is ever truly lost. We'll see that in three points this evening. In the first one, from verses 1 through 9, we can't say we were surprised. God has warned us. Again, we can't say we were surprised. God has warned us. We are now, as I've, saw, I've, as I've said, at chapter 33 of 48 in Ezekiel. And in the book's internal chronology, it has been almost seven years since chapter 1. And maybe you who listen to all sermons in the series feel like that. This opening section of chapter 33 will help us remember and make sense of what we have seen so far. And we'll see that as we go along. We're going to recap as we move forward. So in verses 1 through 6, God gives Ezekiel, his prophet, a parable. And Pastor Larry and I did not talk about this before of talking about parables. But that's the word of God. In ancient days, God explains to Ezekiel, there was this guy, the watchman, who stood at the walls of a city, and he was responsible for alerting everyone of any imminent danger. If he did his job well and warned the city about a coming enemy, for example, and no one did anything to defend themselves against invaders, no one could truly say, well, if only we knew they were coming. Well, they, they knew. The guy told, it, told them. That was his job, and he did it, so he knew. And then, as we see that God often does, and we've seen this this morning, he goes on and explains in private the parable to his servant, the prophet Ezekiel. In verses 7 through 9, God tells Ezekiel that he has been set as the watchman of Israel. Ezekiel is on the lookout for the sword to fall. And as we also have seen, this is what Ezekiel has been doing for 32 chapters and counting. Ezekiel is remarkable in his prophetic office as someone who does every single thing that God asks him to do. And God has asked him to do very weird things as we've seen. And he did without complaining. So he is the watchman and we know that he's been doing his job quite well. Yet it's also interesting to note in verses, both in verses 2 and 8, if you look back, 
that God actually is the imminent danger. It's God's sword that's going to fall. It's God's sword that Ezekiel has to alert his people of. He's the one coming against Israel in judgment for the wickedness. Ezekiel, at this point, God tells him, is merely the weatherman saying that there's fire and brimstone in view for the weekend. And whether people take shelter or not is up to them, not to Ezekiel. This is pretty much the context you need to understand Ezekiel's message as a whole. This entire book, we could say, is summed up in this, these verses. So in, God, in chapter 1, again, God appeared as a judge with a death sentence ready to serve Israel those papers. And ever since, week in and week out, we have seen Ezekiel faithfully deliver that message. We stopped at chapter 16 last time. But until chapter 24, it's all the same warning. It's 24 chapters of warnings. That's why I, feel I felt a little bit free to skip some of those because it's all the same message. The sword is about to fall. What happens then in chapter 24, you ask? Well, in chapter 24, new comes from Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has the city of Jerusalem under siege. He has surrounded the city, and now the clock is ticking. It's only a matter of time. But to heighten the, sus the suspense, and you're left you wondering what's going to happen, from chapters 25 to 32, guess what? More words of divine judgment. And those chapters there in the middle that we also skipped, which is more judgment, mark this 18-month gap between the beginning of Jerusalem's siege and its inv inevitable downfall. So we've been waiting and wondering, when is it going to happen? Having known all that, knowing all that, as you do, let me ask you this. Do you think it would be fair if someone at this point in Ezekiel's history said that the fall of Jerusalem was a big surprise? Can anyone claim they did not know why this has happened? Can the people say, not enough evidence? No alarms went off. The watchman was sleeping. Was he? Was Ezekiel sleeping? We know the answer, right? The point is that on the brink of the most traumatic event in the history of Old Testament history, God is reminding His people one last time, above all, of His mercy. The alarm has been sounding for quite a while now. And more than that, more than just telling them that danger was coming, God has been calling them back to security. He has been telling them how to fled to flee from danger. He has been calling them week in and week out. Come, see, listen, remember, live. Did they? Will they? And then at the lowest point of this book's story, right here on chapter 33, 
It would do us well, I believe, to stop and reflect. How has the alarms of God's word changed the way you live? The message of forgiveness of sins and newness of life in Jesus Christ, the call to abandon the pride of thinking that you were fine enough without God, and the call to find rest in Him when you desperately realize that you have nothing without Him, that call has been sounding from this pulpit week, week in and week out. And that has not started when I came here. It has been sounding that alarm for a long time. Come, listen, see, believe, remember, live. You have been hearing that for a long time now. Will you listen? Someone asked you just this morning, and I'll ask again, will you listen? How are you answering this call? What difference does this all make in your life? This, at this point in the book of Ezekiel, is a very good time for you to stop and think about that for a while. And that was the first thing we needed to see this night. That we can never say we're surprised by the consequences of our sins. Surprised by our resistance to repent. God has been warning us for a long time. What now, Joe? And before we proceed, there is one less than ideal way to respond to these alarms that I believe are very frequent in our hearts and our lips. And that's where we turn to on our second point because God knew we were going to answer like that. And our second point is we can say we have no hope because God cares for us. We can't say we have no hope because God cares for us. We see that in verses 10 through 16. After this mountain of judgment has been piled upon their heads for 33 chapters. In verses 10 and 11, Israel finally says something that should surprises, even if it's slightly. After 32 chapters of being called proud, stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked, if not worse, remember chapter 16, the people seem, seem to have finally understood at least part of Ezekiel's message. Because you can almost hear the hint of despair when they say, our transgressions and our sins are heavy on us. We are wasting away because of them. They seem to recognize something here. It looks like Ezekiel is talking about me. I'm not sure, but it looks like. Yet they still don't know what to do with that. Sure, God, we will all die because of our sins. Great. There's nothing left to lose as if they were asking him back after those 32 chapters. What now, Yahweh? What now? We're all going to die. End of story. Let's pray. 
But now listen carefully to how God answers that, that dispute, so to speak, in verse 11. And this is something that you should treasure in your hearts, maybe even memorize. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Why would you die, Israel, if I have shown, I have shown you the way back, the way out, the way of repentance? The alarm has been sounding. I have not changed. You did, he says. You were the ones who went astray. Why would you just die? In verses 12 to 16, then, he explains why they are where they are. And in summary, we see that being right with God is not a matter of accumulating credit. Even if Israel was just and righteous at some point in history, they have long abandoned their ways. So on the one hand, he's saying, your past will not serve to cover your wicked present. And then we read verse 13. If the righteous trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, None of his righteous deeds shall be remembered, but in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. That's fair, right? A person who was once righteous goes astray. He should pay for that, right? But on the other hand, we see in these verses that being right with God is also not a matter of credit in the sense that there is no ledger so read that he cannot accept one's repentance and faith. This is why God, and I believe this is just for argument's sake because God is never surprised, almost sounds surprised when he asks, why would you die? I have been showing you mercy since before you were born. I have been sounding the alarm so you can seek protection with me. Why would you say you will die? If the wicked person repents and believes, turns away from his sins and turns back to God, why would I not save him, says God? He shall surely live. And once again, for the thousandth time, this is an Ezekiel in a nutshell. And someone once described Ezekiel's writing style as, why would you say something when you can say the same thing three times? And Ezekiel could object to that, saying, if you have listened the first time, I wouldn't need to repeat it. Yet once again, here you are. You, tonight. You might be here today with the same heavy heart of Israel in this section. As you have been hearing Ezekiel's alarm over the past weeks and months, you might be thinking to yourself, surely I am outside of God's reach. I am the worst of sinners. How could any good God want anything with me? Do you know what I have done? If only people at church would see the real me And the things that I do when I'm alone, the things that go through my head, 
I believe no one would even shake my hand at church. You might have thought that along the way in this series. So friends, if this is your situation today, as Ezekiel does a lot of times, I'll do it. I'll repeat it. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why would you die, he is asking. This was the second thing we needed to see tonight. Having sustained months of rebuking from Israel, from Ezekiel. And then as we stop and take stock of our recent walk, we can never say we have no hope, like the people who are saying here. Yes, we shouldn't count on or take pride in our past righteousness. But on the other hand, we are also never too far away that we cannot come back and return. God cares for those who are His. He loves His people so much that He provided the most magnificent way for them not to perish in their wickedness. And this is what we'll see in our last point. We can never say, we can't say this isn't fair because God has paid the price that we could not pay. Again, we can say this isn't fair. God has paid the price that we could not pay. We see that in verses 17 to 22. And once again, because someone might not have listened the first or the thousandth time, these last six verses of our text will summarize the entire message of Ezekiel to us again. Because having had all their objections answered by God, the people resort to an almost irrational, well, this isn't fair. Verse 17, that's just that. They look at him and say, God's ways are not fair. And this, of course, if you have been paying attention, has been the complaint all along the book. God's people were taken from the land, brought to Babylon, and there they heard that their enemies would plunder and pillage their land. This isn't fair, they kick and scream. God's answer to that is that he'll have none of it. And he simply says in verse 17, it's your way that's not fair. I'm not unfair. And to show that he is fair, what he has been saying that would happen, happens. God judged them according to their ways. In the twelfth year of the exile, verse 21, this lone guy arrives in Babylon, coming from Jerusalem, with a rather short account. In the Hebrew original, there are just two words, city fell. It was the summer of 597 B.C., the once proud walls atop Mount Zion trembled under the Babylonian siege engines and fell to the relentless assault. In the temple, solemn worship turned to desperate cries as the invaders breached its halls and defiled it with violence and with blood. Flames went up, 
consuming the Lebanese cedar columns, the golden walls, as the wails also went up, echoing through the night Jerusalem fell. How lonely sits the city that was full of people, cried out another poet, Jeremiah, in his famous poem, Lamentations. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess has become a slave. What now? Jerusalem, Drummond might have added to that poem. Well, now the good part begins. You see, back in chapter 3, God told Ezekiel he would shut his mouth and bind his tongue, which is ironic given how much he has spoken since. The point is that something changed. Now that Jerusalem has fallen, Ezekiel can actually open his mouth and explain to the people the words God spoke in a way, as we've seen, if you were here this morning, Ezekiel now is free to explain the parables. Up to that point, he was just bringing up more hard, hard, hard hardness on them. But now his mouth is open. He's free to speak. And as the prophets of the Old Testament would do, he is now also free to speak to God on behalf of the people. Now that Jerusalem has fallen, the temple has been destroyed, his mouth is open. Why? Because all the things Israel had put their trust and hope upon are now gone. As painful as the notion of Jerusalem being destroyed was, this was like the pain of expelling naturally a kidney stone. It's the sort of pain that precedes relief. As painful as it is, and it's very painful. The point is that now that there's nothing left to take down, Now that their idols have been destroyed, Ezekiel can start his work of building up. He's free to mend the bruised heed and free to fend back to a flame the smoldering wick. He's free to be the prophetic mediator between God and his people that he was called to be way back in chapter 1. And this, my friends, This is good news not only for Ezekiel or for his hearers, but this is the good news of the entire Bible, and it's good news for you and for me. The fact that after Jerusalem fell, his mouth was open is good news for you and I, who have been failing week in and week out to heed the calls of the gospel. Because In the words of Margaret O'Dell, a commentator, she says, Knowing what we do about our crippling failings, regressions, and willful impulses, we ask, how can we live? Because we know we can't save ourselves. 
the good news in this situation is that the wicked ways of God's people, our pride, our idolatry, have been destroyed atop of a mountain right outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. Mount Calvary. There, God's Son, His only beloved Son, Jesus Christ, suffered the greatest it's not fair this world has ever seen. He's the righteous man who only does righteousness of verse 16. He should surely live. Yet because he was carrying our guilt, our ignorance, our pollution on his shoulders, he died and died the death that we wicked people, fickle and prideful, deserved. Then, as he rose again from the dead, he sent his people with open mouths, empowered by the same Spirit who rested upon Ezekiel, to proclaim to all four corners of this earth the message that the price has been paid, and now there's a way back. This isn't unfair, because if we had to pay for it, we would just die. We can say this is unfair, because someone, not you, paid for your price. So after 32 chapters of judgment, we might feel ourselves every now and then asking, how then can we live? What now, God? The answer is Jesus. He paid it all. The sword that Ezekiel was calling fell on him, so it didn't need to fall fall on us. Why would you die if there's life in him? Repent and believe he has been calling Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, he says. What now? It's up to you to answer that. Let's pray. Almighty God, as you have stretched forth your helping hand to us by your only begotten Son, sealing your eternal covenant with us by His blood. Grant us that we keep our faith. Grant us that we persevere in the worship of your name until we see our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, face to faith, face in His abiding kingdom. In His name we pray and we say together, Amen.